you know, my last chair report in the NOSB is we haven't fed the world yet conventionally. <laughs> um, so why you know, is ammonia extracts and organic going to make the difference for us to feed the world? I would argue it's probably going to do the opposite. It'll make it harder because we lose a system that's more resilient. But you know, it's a false, it's a straw man that if we, you know, conventional agriculture has so far failed to feed the world. <laughs> it's a great goal. Wouldn't we all love it? But it's it, it's not just production. <laughs> it's climate. It's systems. It's social systems. And, you know, we've known that for years. Um, Francis Moore LePay definitely said that, you know. And so those are, I think we have to avoid letting, getting caught in, you know, letting people define that this system has to be everything. Um, I think we need, can fall back on and say this has, is an ecosystem. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Steve Ela, an organic fruit farmer on the western slopes of Colorado. You'll hear Steve discuss control of the dreaded codling moth with a virus used as biological control. He also uses pheromones to confuse pests in his orchards. I met Steve when he was on the National Organic Standards Board. The 2017 vote on hydroponics was Steve's first meeting, so you'll get to hear from him firsthand talk about that experience in this conversation. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, the co-director of the Real Organic Project here with Steve Ela at Ela Family Farm. Hi, Steve. We go back a ways. A ways. <laughs> we won't even think about how far back, but yes. Tell us sure. about Ela Family Family Farm. What's going on here? Oh, well, we are a fourth generation uh, fruit orchard certified organic. Uh, we uh, have been around for over 120 years. So obviously uh, we haven't been certified that whole time. We've been growing every which way. We started back into organic production in 1994 and became 100% certified in like 2004. Uh, so we're very committed to that direction. But uh, uh, we grow peaches, pears, apples, plums, sweet cherries, heirloom tomatoes, uh, some other things, uh, whatever we can to make a little bit of money. But uh, um, so that's been, we have a commercial kitchen on the farm. So in addition to growing fruit, we process that fruit into artisanal goods and such. Uh, tell me a little bit about the family history. How'd you end up here in Hotchkiss, Colorado? My family, uh, my mom's side, my mom was the farmer, uh, moved to Western Colorado in the Grand Junction area in 1907 and kind of bounced around. We then, uh, my granddad had a place they bought in 1920 that I grew up next to, uh, but Grand Junction is now four or five times the size it was when I was growing up. And the area that used to be rural and farming and whatever is now houses and subdivisions. And that is part of our farm is houses and subdivisions. So we literally just got overrun by population growth. And we knew the growers up here in Hotchkiss and uh, this place came up for sale. So we bought it in 1987 and made the transi transition from Grand Junction to Hotchkiss. But, uh, 
What's the difference in growing environment? Are you a little bit higher elevation? Thousand feet higher, so about 10 days later. A um, little bit cooler. Uh, you know, I would say if you're gonna, I, I, I haven't done the stats, but four to five degrees cooler-ish. Um, and I think probably the big difference really shows up more in October. So we can grow great apples up here because the temperatures in September shift to that kind of fall, cool, cooler uh, mountain temperatures, which apples love, whereas the Grand Junction area just stays hotter longer. And so apple, that little bit of three, four degree change is the difference between growing great apples and apples that are good, but, but it's just better apple growing area up here. Meanwhile, we're hot enough in the summer, we can still grow great peaches. Um, but we're not gonna, you know, I know growers in Palisade area that grow peaches in October. Um, we're not gonna do that up here. We just don't have the heat units that late season to do that. But, uh, you know, starting, we'll start peach harvest here in a week and we'll pick peaches in early September and then we'll switch to pears and apples. Talk a little bit about the climate of Southwest Colorado here and why it's makes amazingly tasting fruit. A lot of people around the country don't know that this fruit is, in my opinion, the best the best in the country. Well, they don't believe us. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, we it, it's the desert southwest, southwest, so we get that 40 to 50 degree diurnal swing where it can be 90 at night and it can be 50 during the, or right, 90 during the day, 100 during the day, 50 degrees at night, and that 50 degree swing seems to really bring out the, the sugars and the color and, uh, of the fruit. And especially as we get into uh, August and September, we really see that um, you get a few cloudy days in September and some coolness and the apple flavor just kind of pops out. Um, and so I think it's just that weird, hot, cold, most a lot of sun, um, you know, good water, of course, that uh, that combination is unique in, in the country. And certainly this area is unique in Colorado. <laughs> so how do you market? Um, is it, I know you go to farmer's markets still, I know there's a local cooperative. Are you just really diversified and doing everything? We, so in 120 years, we have marketed probably every way possible. Maybe not every way, but we've, we've given a good shot. Um, we at this point, and you know, always subject to change because never say, you know, the one thing is the right thing. At this point, we do, in a normal crop year, we would have uh, 40 to 50% of our fruit go to farmer's markets in the, in the front range. Uh, so we're the local fruit grower in Fort Collins, which is uh, kind of blows the 100-mile diet out of the window since it's 350 miles to Fort Collins. But that's just the way Colorado works and, and where fruit is grown. Uh, we do probably 15 to 20% of our fruit through CSA shares. Um, that varies from, uh, I think we maxed out you know, a couple years ago at 1,200 shares. Uh, I would say 500, 600 shares is more of our, our stride. Um, we do do some wholesale uh, to small stores and specialty food stores and farm stands and restaurants. And, uh, we work with Whole Foods a little bit um, on, on certain items when we have them. And then uh, we have commercial kitchen on the farms. That's another 10% of our off-grade product goes into, into jars in one form or another. So ho hopefully nobody's adding that up. You've got me on <laughs> tape. I, that probably doesn't add to 100%, but we're just going to say it does. <laughs> if one market just worked and, and there was endless supply, would, is there one that you would, you would prefer the most? If there was enough demand in that stream? 
Um, it's a great question. The, the farmer's markets are the most work because, I mean, we have to drive for six hours to get to the first one. Uh, and so that's just a lot of overhead time and, and you set up and take down and interaction with people. On the other hand, that having interaction with people is wonderful because you get direct feedback of whether you're doing a good job or something tastes good or you get to help people learn how to eat and what to taste and what to taste for. Um, so I really enjoy doing those, um, but as a somewhat of an introvert, that's also a challenge to have to it's exhausting. Kind of yeah. It's like, <laughs> At the it's end of it, you know, yeah. you're renewed from all the, you know, excitement about your stuff. Yeah. But just like it takes me two days to recover. Right. From exactly. I mean, the you're, you're outward energy. Yeah, yeah. Your ears are scratched, but but you're tired. Yeah. So I mean, so I mean, I would rather just be on the farm and send it out to other people. But um, I think we live in a global economy, and uh, Colorado is not going to be the low price uh, producer. Uh, we're going to be a specialty crop producer where we're going to produce great fruit, but it's not going to be the cheapest. And so the world commodity market, I don't think, is going to work for us uh, or will work for us in the future unless something dramatically changes. So I think, uh, you know, some mix. Um, and I mean, you say if any one thing worked, um, but I guess I just don't think that's ever going to be true. Um, I really believe that we have a diverse marketing strategy and that's what's kept us alive is because in one year or something, you know, we have a hailstorm and cosmetic, uh, you know, aren't as good. Well, you can take more of that fruit to farmer's markets and explain it to people. And in the next year you have too much fruit and you can sell more to Whole Foods or more through the wholesale realm. And so having those options to dip and dodge and take what you have and do different things with it, I think is, is ultimately more work, but it's also what's kept us in business. Incredibly resilient. You know, yeah. it's kind of funny how ecosystem strategies of diversity might apply to marketing. <laughs> Other things in life, yeah. yeah <laughs> you mentioned Whole Foods. Have you noticed a difference there with uh, the purchase of Amazon? You know, we haven't too much. We've had really good people we've worked with there. Um, obviously, anything in any company can change uh, depending on the people. So, but so far, knock on wood, uh, they they've continued to treat us pretty well. Um, yeah, but we also, I mean, like say it's, you know, 10 to 30% of our business at most. So that's, you know, we'd like to keep that balanced as well. And, you know, we've seen other big companies come and go, door-to-door uh, -door organics and uh, Food Maven and some of these others that, you know, were there and big splashes and then suddenly tomorrow they're gone. And uh, so, yeah, it's always, we always keep that in the back of our head. Uh, coming back to diversity of marketing and uh, diversity of outlets. So we try not to put all the all the apples in one cart. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the local cooperative here. It's organic, right? Uh, there is a, and actually, if you're thinking about the packing shed, it's not actually cooperative. It's, okay. it's privately owned, but it, okay. it, in essence, I mean, you can call it that. It's there for the growers. Um, it is... Organic, although now it has does pack some conventional fruit, just because another one of the conventional sheds uh, uh, disappeared, okay. and so just so they keep uh, it pragmatically segregated. they keep yep. it segregated. Yeah, I think they do a, a good job. It's not I don't have any uh, worries there. It, yeah. Worries there. I mean, they're very committed. Uh, the the main manager is an organic grower, so yeah, there's no reason for yeah. him to, to uh, shoot his, shoot himself in the foot if he wanted to. But um, uh, but yeah, it's a local. You know, it definitely supports the growers. They offer 
a lot of supplies. We work together um, while we personally don't pack through them anymore. Um, we definitely have a close relationship and, um, uh, you know, if one of us runs short of supplies, you know, we know who we're going to call. It's like, hey, do you happen to have yeah. <laughs> such and such today? It's like, yeah, sure, come get some. Yeah, what's the role of like um, sort of facilities beyond just the farms that we need in order to make this regional food system kind of across the country work? I think that's that's a great question. That's the challenge is that infrastructure um, and especially for small farms in rural areas, uh, um, having access to bolts and nuts and parts and boxes and things, it's challenging, especially, I mean, I, you know, we, I just talked to somebody yesterday to get like the little paper tote bags for our farmer's markets and they are unavailable this year. Mm. Done. Yeah. Period. Not available. <laughs> so we have supply we'll get through this year, but it's like suddenly like, oh, those things that you just kind of take for granted, you can order. Up order. And, yep. um, jars for our applesauce. I mean, it's a pasta jar. You know, you buy pasta in the grocery store. Relatively unavailable. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe get some in three months, maybe six months. It took us a year last time we ordered them. Yeah. Um, you know, where it used to be three weeks. So, so I think local infrastructure, having that ability for farmers to have access to the things they need is really important. And there's a critical mass and that's something that I worry about like in the fruit industry here is, uh, as it has gotten smaller in Delta County of whether, you know, where do you cross the tipping point on critical mass and, and where do you cross the tipping point on people that can work on tractors? Um, you know, it's, I think farmers across the country are dealing with that, but uh, certainly smaller, more smaller farms, smaller areas, that's a bigger struggle than, you know, if you've got a big John Deere dealership out in the middle of the Midwest, different story. Um, but, you know, it's also what makes it fun to do here. <laughs> we're not, we're not part of the big infrastructure. <laughs> you know, we get to do what we do best. I was so impressed too, last time I came through the extension service is kind of organically research minded, mm -hmm. which is rare. And, um, you know, that whole organic growers are Luddites and, you know, grow the way we did hundreds of years ago. Let's let's talk about that. First of all, how much research is organic out of all of the research that is done by Extension? How unique is that, that you've got an organic research station? Uh, pretty unique. I mean, there's definitely, you know, you get up into Washington State where they have you know, lots of assessments and things. They have dedicated research plots, but it is unusual to have a, a organic research center, and that's pretty cool. I think that's something that can really set us apart. Um, and are you guys Luddites? What kind of research are they doing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, Let's we, talk about codling moth. That's, that's yeah. I mean, we work a with good them one. on trying to decide priorities. Uh, it. Uh, that station was closed and reopened just a couple years ago, so they're still getting their feet on the ground, uh, you know, in terms of exactly where they're going to go. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, the, the whole Luddite thing, I think, makes me laugh. Um, you know, as I tell people, at least in the, in the, uh, on this farm, um, yes, we use techniques that have been used for hundreds or thousands of years, but the way we use them is often based on research the last... 10 to 20 years. If you look at our insect control program, um, it's all research of the last decade and how we do it. Yeah, do we still use lime sulfur and sulfur in some of those things? Certainly. Do we use mating disruption and virus and biological control in better ways? Certainly. 
And so, you know, I think my story is always that we, we go through eras, you know, the Iron Age and uh, all these things historically. Well, I think in the uh, post-World War II, we went through the Chemical Age um, where we had all these great uh, pesticides that killed things and, you know, prevented pests. Um, we went through the space program where we were manufacturing food and, uh, you know, ingredient lists expanded with lots of unmentioned unpronounceable names but we thought you know we can we can uh, substitute manufacturing lines for for nature and we did um, and it worked for a while and then we saw the downstream consequences of DDT and other pesticides and the treadmill of spraying one thing and having to spray for another um, and I think now what we're seeing is the return to the biological age uh, so you know it's biology isn't isn't being a Luddite, it's actually pay, paying attention to ecosystem services. And that knowledge base is expanding and still very much a black hole. And so if we look at sewage treatment or where oil and the BP spill in the Gulf went, where did it go? It was eaten by bacteria mostly. Um, that's biological, it wasn't cleaned up. Um, and so what do we do on our farm? How do we control insects? That's gonna be biological and ecosystem services. And so if we're spraying a virus instead of uh, toxic pesticide. Um, we're still going to try and uh, get at the worms and the apples, but we're going to do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the whole rest of the system. And I think that's that's the change in how we look at the world now. And so moving from we can control everything chemically, we can manufacture things, to know how do things interact, how do we use multiple parts of an ecosystem to get to a point, that's that's what's cool now. <laughs> Let's dive in a little bit. There were so many things you just said that were wonderful that we need to go back to, but um, it's the age of COVID and you just said a virus, right? We've got host specificity going on. <laughs> talk about how, talk about this virus that controls codling moth and, and kind of why people should be excited about it. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's, you know, as we look at an orchard system, um, I mean, we don't have to scout for mites and aphids anymore. We did when we were conventional because they would show up because we would kill predators accidentally as we, as we attacked other insects. Well, once we got into a really good organic system, those are controlled, you know? I don't have to worry about it. Mother Nature takes care of those things. I'm a lazy person, you know? Mother Nature can do it, more power to her. And so the challenge is how do we take the handful of insects that are not going to be biologically controlled naturally, almost all of them are invasives, um, uh, you know, and we do have to control those to have saleable fruit, but how do we control those without screwing up all the rest of that system that we don't have to do the work for? And, and so that's where codling moth, worms and apples uh, is a big one. I mean, it's survived thousands and thousands of years. It survived neurotoxins and DDT and Gathion and all these. I mean, it, you know, they're wily uh, and they're still here. Uh, so how do we control those without messing up everything else? And that's where the research of the last 20 years between mating disruption of where you take the pheromones the insects use to communicate with each other. And those are very specific because you know, the collie moth doesn't want to talk to a leaf roller. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe they can be friends, I don't care, whatever. But in terms of reproduction, they want a codling moth. And so those things are so species specific that we can really start to dial in 
controlling one species without disrupting the rest of the system. And the virus comes into that as well. It's a virus that's specific to codling moth, COVID specific to humans, more or less. Um, and so we can spray that virus. It's already in the system. We're not introducing anything new. We're just raising the titer level and we can disrupt that particular insect without messing up the whole rest of the system. And that, I think that's where ecology and environmental science and research and ecosystem thinking is really gonna come into how do we grow food in ways that is resilient and lets the system do the work for us um, and doesn't involve lots of extra carbon inputs or fossil fuel inputs and still grows good food. Mm. Um, you're pretty active. So we met on the when you were on the National Organic Standards Board. Do you want to let people know what that was and why you did that? <laughs> what you tell me? And whether or not you have any regrets? No. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I served on the National Organic Standards Board, which... In the United States, the National Organic Program is what regulates the organic seal. What is organic goes through USDA. Uh, and one of the interesting things of that program is the National Organic Standards Board is an advisory board to the USDA regarding the National Organic Program. It's very unusual in the sense that anything uh, that uh, is not completely natural that needs, that needs to be used in an organic system um, has to be applied for through the National Organic Standards Board, and it cannot, uh, USDA cannot unilaterally say, yes, you can use that without the approval of the National Organic Standards Board. 15 people, two meetings a year, um, put things out for public comments, and those public comments are usually from 1,000 to 3,000 public comments on a range of topics. So the stakeholders of the organic community have a very real chance to put in to those board members what they think. Um, and so it's a very interactive process that I think is very unusual in USDA. Um, and it really gives organic stakeholders a huge chance to be involved. Uh, I was on that board for five years, served as chair for two. Um, big time commitment, but also learned a lot. I mean, you don't know how sausage is made until you make sausage. You don't know all the workings of you know, what does it take to have be an organic grower? And you have these materials that, you know, say, can I put this on my trees or not? And it's like, well, is it OMRI approved? Is it natural? Is it what? Well, NOSB has their fingers in all that. And, um, so, it, you know, some of it's pretty mundane. Do I really care about some of these particular materials that are used in manufacturing that I can barely pronounce? No, but somebody does. Um, and, you know, they make the organic system. And whether they should stay on the national list or not, that's for us to decide and debate. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a interesting process because you're, it's a government private partnership and that's messy. Um, we can sit here and talk all day about the, the warts of that process. We can talk about the good things of that process. They're both. Um, and you know, there's always debate in the stakeholder community of should USDA be, the manager of our organic program. I, I think there's good arguments to say no. There's good arguments to say yes. Hmm. Um, so being part of the NOSB was a way to be involved in that and, and learn more. Um, uh, it's always, uh, I guess I'll take any excuse to talk to other farmers around the country. That's where I learned. 
fun. As an introvert, you love that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's weird. Yes. Let's start with what's been good. Yeah. Let's, let's go, you know, what's worked with USDA being in charge in your mind? I mean, I think one is that you actually have tax dollars working for us. Um, if we had to privately fund enforcement, um, if we had to privately fund um, the staff that uh, oversees the management of the national list and uh, oversees rulemaking and oversees inspectors. Uh, it's a lot of money. I mean, it's millions of dollars a year that I would, as an organic grower, have to be funding otherwise. Um, so I think, you know, using tax dollars to the public good, and I'm going to say organics is the public good, is, is a good thing. Um, I think having, you know, ultimately potentially the Department of Justice behind us for fraud cases is is huge. You know, otherwise it gets messier. How do you enforce a standard that's not legal? And being part of the government, it is legal. Uh, so those things are those things are good. Um, How well is it funded? I mean, is it able to take care of all that enforcement that it needs? I mean, I think there's an infinite, you know, infinite need for that. I think that funding has gone up in the last four or five years. Um, I think it's gotten better. Is it perfect? No, I'm sure, and it never will be perfect. But I don't think, I don't think that enforcement would be perfect, whether it's government or private. <laughs> There's always there are always going to be people that are going to tweak the system, um, and there are always going to be people that are poking holes. And so. Uh, I, I think we've got a pretty good system. Is it perfect? No. Um, you know, I'm not going to apologize for for what's wrong with it, but I'm also not going to say it's perfect. And uh, I think it's a learning curve too of how do we, as the industry gets bigger, how do we decide how much paperwork we as growers want to do and turn in, and how many times do we need to have lot codes and traceability and this goes to that, goes to that, goes to that. It's a pain in the butt. None of us like it. And on the other hand, that's what prevents fraud. And so where's the balance between too much for a grower like us that we say we're done, we don't want to do it anymore because it's too much, and keeping somebody from putting a truckload of non-organic grain in the middle of a bunch of organic grain. And that's going to, always going to be the challenge. What are some specific things that we can do to prevent the case that you're talking about that you know, I recognize where there's a lot of domestic grain fraud yeah. that occurred. You know, I think uh, at least in Colorado, um, a lot of the cases that have been um, found have been other organic growers noticing things and paying attention and saying, that doesn't seem right. Where did that come from? I know that person, they don't grow that much. Or it seems weird. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, just, the community self-policing is probably one of the biggest, strongest things. Um, not perfect, uh, can't be perfect, but that's people that actually know the systems and see it every day, you know, raising red flags when they see it. I think that's really important. I think that always will be. Um, I think audit trails, um, you know, I get very nervous when the inspector comes every year and says, okay, let's do your mass audit. We're gonna start from this block of peaches and we're gonna go to that box at the farmer's market, you show me. And because there's a lot of arrows <laughs> going through that process and it's easy to forget to record something one day. And you know, but that that is where we can say, yes, this makes sense. The number of peaches we picked here makes sense to the number of peaches 
you bought, yeah. <laughs> you know, at one of the farmer's markets or in a jar of uh, peach jam. Um, so, but I, you know, the fraud's always going to be a tough one. Um, and I think it's just going to take the organic community continuing to be vigilant within ourselves and, and pushing for it and consumers saying, you know, this isn't acceptable. Um, I think you were right on with the, the kind of local growers kind of noticing that there's a problem. The constant case was massive. And so they were able to close that one. Uh, how many complaints are there backed up, piled up for the National Organic Program to investigate? And do we have a problem there? Right. Yeah. And I can't answer that. Um, you know, I don't know what the data is. I know a few years ago, it was massive backup and they have cleared a lot of that backlog, but I can't, I don't know the stats now where, you know, where they are. And, you know, the hard part is like anything, it, you can't, it's a lot of, a lot of pencil pushing to, you know, crack these fraud cases. Um, it's a lot of paper trails and you don't just sit down and do that overnight. So I, I mean, I, I can't imagine being the person trying to track those fraud cases down because you're going through reams of paper and books. Um, would not be my favorite job. On the other hand, it could be fascinating. One of the things that was missing that seemed so basic was like the acreage that was under that certificate. Yeah. You know, and so hopefully we're getting that. I don't know that we're there yet. Is that something that's getting resolved? That seems like an obvious one. <laughs> I mean, it is. Yeah. And I mean, I think the you know, there last year there have been proposals before the NOSB of how to do that, and there's been some good ideas. And it's the the devil's in the details, as always, because yeah, it's like oh yeah, we should just be able to do that. Well, you know, we're standing in an acre of peaches here. I have blocks that are a quarter of an acre. I have blocks that are five acres. You know, somebody in the Midwest, their small block may be 160 acres or 640 acres. How do you, uh, you know, as a your vegetable grower, you grow in rows probably. You know, at what point do you report the 0.16 acres of lettuce? Uh, because, you know, if you, and you picked, I don't know how many pounds of lettuce out of that. Um, if you pick four times that, that would be a red flag, but you have to report it to that, that scale. Well, are you going to spend, you know, all that time reporting about 0.16 acres of lettuce? Um, yeah, I can see what you're saying. So it's, it's like, we're getting lost in, we had someone who was really a problem, right? Affecting the price of grain and the number of organic growers across the entire country. And yet we wanted sound and sensible for the small growers. Do we need to be treating small growers differently than large scale growers? I mean, I think, you know, ultimately I, I, and I do agree with USDA on this, is it comes down to risk management. Yep. Um, that no, I don't think we can police everybody. I don't want you to report 0.1 acres of lettuce because you'll go crazy, you'll quit growing. Right. Um, I do want, yeah, these big folks to say, does it make sense that I got how many bushels from this, you know, quarter section of corn? Uh, but I, but I, so I think that at some point you do have to just take the statistics and say, we're going to look at the, the most risky, the most risk prone areas. Doesn't mean that in these other areas, people aren't going to be messing around. Um, but we don't have infinite resources and as growers we don't have an infinite time to fill out paperwork so yeah. but it's but as we talk about trying to figure out how to match volumes with acreages 
and things and it's going through multiple farms and multiple silos and multiple markets um it gets tough yeah. in the details it seems well, and you're explaining easy. the need for the national organic program essentially right I mean, how, how are we supposed to do this on our own right yeah. yeah i mean we we struggle even with the food safety stuff of we pick we go into our packing shed we pack it we palletize things and then two days later we're breaking those pallets down to send from here to Denver on a truck to go out to stores or markets. Well, we talked to software companies about traceability and they're like, well, our software can't do this. Like, but we do that every day. Yeah. Um, short of literally scanning every box, which right. um, makes my head hurt. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the complexity of, especially in specialty crops. We're not yep. just sending a truckload of grain out. We're sending a pallet of peaches, pears, apples, plums, with five boxes of this and six boxes of that and two varieties of that. And um, yet we're trying to get everything into one system. Um, you know, okay, I'm small, but smaller, you're smaller. Um, you know, I would say- You're we're, large compared to the one I just visited. So. Right, I mean, but compared <laughs> yeah. to Washington, I'm micro. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how do we scale, you know, an 80 acre farm to a, four acre farm to a 10,000 acre farm, who all may actually be doing kind of exactly the same thing, just on, you know, maybe you do one market, I do six, but we're doing the same thing, different sizes. It gets, it, I, I, you know, I'll give it to the board. It's a tough one. And it's, you know, I've seen the board put out some really great proposals and I've seen stakeholders put comments in like, are you kidding? <laughs> that makes my head explode. Uh -huh. And it's a fair comment. Uh -huh. um, but so we have to figure out as a stakeholders how to balance that because yeah. um, we don't want fraud right? and we do want sanity. Um, it's a, I, I think it's really tough. <laughs> so we're talking about fraud on the, you know, you are cheating the standards. You're a member of the Real Organic Project because we had issues about what organic even means. <laughs> Will you talk about the battle for soil in organic? <laughs> Oh, yes, the fun topics. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, soil scientist, you're a soil scientist. Um, obviously, we grow in the soil. You know, I think that's the, uh, that's the debate. I really believe that ecosystems begin in the soil and that the tree ecosystem reflects the soil ecosystem. And so you need soil for that. Um, obviously, there's a debate within the organic community of whether that is true with container systems and hydroponic systems. Um, there are obviously people that feel very differently than I feel. Um, I vehemently disagree, but I also um, see people really believe that those solve other problems. I don't agree, but the stakeholder community hasn't managed to come to agreement on that. Um, I think uh, there's gonna be some real uh, you know, there's going to continue to be some really important debates around all this um, and discussions. And I personally would prefer to see it go towards the soil side of things that you all support. Um, it's going to be a process. Uh, climate change is making that harder in some ways and easier in some ways. Um, but I also think some of the discussions we've just had, like in the NOSB on the what types of fertilizers are appropriate for use in organic, I think that's where stakeholders, consumers really need to be able to say, this is important to me. 
um, that's going to be a battle of, uh, if you look at ammonia extracts. Um, should they be allowed? I don't think so. Obviously, you know, the board didn't think so either. But when that goes to rulemaking, um, I know there's going to be a lot of input, to say it delicately, the other way. Yeah. Um, so this is where um, we all approach how much can we do in our lives? How much time do we have? But I think we pick our battles. Yeah. And I think picking our battles for the philosophy of organic is probably a, a really important one. The ammonia extract was, an, I'd like you to dive in and kind of explain why that was kind of related to the hydroponic battle a little bit. Um, let's talk about highly soluble nitrogen fertilizers and why that's not really with the spirit of organic or even the law. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it comes back to philosophy and it's, and this is the problem of when you write words on paper that it's very hard to have words completely reflect philosophy of what we all believe in. And um, I believe in soil price processes and carbon flow. And when you put a highly soluble nutrient in, yes, there are times it's really useful. Um, and, I, and a number of organic growers um, who are tremendous respect for said we do not want to completely eliminate highly soluble uh, nitrogen fertilizers because there are times you know five percent of the time two percent of the time as you're in a grower that those are really critical so to prohibit them completely they're against that and they're tried and true organic growers um, but they also turn around and say but we should not use them all the time okay how do we <laughs> Where's the gray area? Devils in how the details we, again. <laughs> how do we, yeah, you know, define that? And that's uh, that's where the battle is right now. And I, I think we still, as we look at climate-friendly practices and carbon um, sequestration, we really want, as organic community, to really look at how do we up our game on that. Um, you know, we're not perfect. We can do better. Uh, uh, I want to grow all my own fertility. Um, we have cover crops. We have a lot of alfalfa. Do we grow all our own fertility? No, we don't. I wish we did. We're trying to, but we're not there yet. So we still spread some, uh, you know, other organic inputs. Um, I would rather not, but we do. So, so there's a really big difference there. What you're explaining though, is you have a principle that you're, you're um, striving towards. And there are occasions when it's it falls short, and that's what the national list is for, versus on the other end of the continuum is we're going to design a system around completely needing this input. And I think that's where we get so confused. We're looking at yes, no, yep. as opposed to, okay, let's look at your systems. How does the law back us up on looking at the system instead of designing a system for this input? Yeah. Do we have some um, something to back us here? On the organic communities, like desire I mean, for perfection, but not all the way there yet, and well, a need for a national list. I mean, the last uh, you know NOSB meeting was on the three to one carbon to nitrogen ratio. Um, that was at least an attempt on my part to put into the law. Uh, I mean, it has to go through a lot of rulemaking. I don't know if it will get there, but to more clearly define that there is a carbon and nitrogen relationship in an organic system. But you're trying to define in words a philosophy again, and that's really hard. Um, and there's, well, we can do it but, scientifically. So what happens if we put too much nitrogen down to the organic matter in the soil? Yeah, I mean, we burn it up. Yeah. 
I mean, and we know, yeah, we pretty well know that. And that's, um, and you know, you dive into the scientific literature. Unfortunately, there always are uh, researchers that have looked at systems that come up with some different data. Um, so it's never black and white. And I mean, I, I agree, we agree, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but not everybody agrees. And so, uh, but I think that's where as, as the people that really believe in organics and in systems management need to continue to really push for systems and for research. I mean, we talked earlier, research center, um, organic research center, let's have these soil projects done on organic ground. I mean, even as I was looking into the scientific literature for some ammonia extracts in these three to one ratios, so many of the studies are done on transitional or non-organic ground. Well, we expect them to have the same results as something that's been in, as ground that might have been treated organically for 30 years. No, they're not gonna have the same results. They are fundamentally different ecosystems. And so I don't think we have the data yet. Um, we have some that That's I love. That's like such a scientist. I like know. One paper, it's proven. Right, yeah, but I think we... <laughs> no, we need a lot I more mean, data. I mean, the soil's a black box. We yeah, don't yeah. know what's happening. And then perennials especially. I mean, you talk about cover crops and it's all annual stuff. Yeah. I mean, I talk about cover crops here and you, t you, know, you go to talk to somebody and they start to like, yeah, it gets really complicated, Steve. You're like, I know. <laughs> so I, so it's, it's a real challenge of how do we battle based on philosophy and really push for that and fund science that is really complicated and often very long-term. How easy is, is it to get a research project funded for 10 years? Really, 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 really hard. Um, but that's what soils projects need is because they are 10 and 20 year projects. Yeah. Um, and so we know that, yeah, you add too much nitrogen, it burns up carbon. Um, uh, there were some uh, research articles that said, yeah, but that you add a lot of nitrogen, it actually increases plant biomass in a system that's short of nitrogen. True. Plants grow more. More plants, more carbon back into the soil. But if you have a system that's not short on nitrogen, then adding that extra nitrogen changes the system to burning up carbon. But that's where you really have to read the scientific literature carefully and parse it out and not just take the last sentence that adding nitrogen increases carbon because hmm. in the nitrogen sh short system, it can. But I don't think of a good organic system as being nitrogen short. And that's been kind of a paradigm shift in the scientific community too, where we thought fertilizers would increase biomass and then hence increase carbon. So this was a paradigm. And then over time, we've seen that maybe we were wrong. So, so the reason why I think language is important and, and that we're called the Real Organic Project is um, because there's, there's implications, you know, behind that word and there's policies and you can change the world or you can't. And so words matter. And so we've got another word now that actually regenerative came out of the organic movement, but it almost feels like we, we've got a fractured community and so what, what does regenerative versus organic mean to you? Are they the same or do they have different meanings? Yes. <laughs> oh. I mean, in essence, they should be the same. Uh, and I believe they are the same, but uh, the organic community can't come 
and probably won't, and reasonably so, come to consensus of how strict to be, and so regenerative is the more strict definition. Um, and so, I mean, I think there's probably room for both, for people that want to be, you know, ultra-conservative, ultra-orthodox, and, and not so ultra-orthodox. Uh, I think there's value in both. I mean, I, even though we might not qualify for regenerative, I still believe in what we do, and I think it's a valid organic system. Um, you know, regenerative could be the very gold standard of the gold standard. You're talking regenerative organic certification. Correct. Okay. Yes, regenerative organic, yes. Okay. But if you're going to go just to regenerative, not organic, mm -hmm. then it gets really messy. And I think... So what do you mean by that? Like, who's claiming regenerative outside of organic? I mean, you're hearing a lot of no-till advocates. You know, we're not tilling, we're not disturbing soil structure, we're not disturbing soil carbon, we're putting residues back in place, um, saying that they are regenerative. Uh, but using herbicides, which to me is not regenerative. Um, and so I think it gets really, uh, you know, to me, regenerative is regeneration of systems and systems that, and I'm going to say resilience goes in there too. And so I think it's always hard to pigeonhole everything into one word. But to me, a regenerative system is also very resilient. And so like this farm, if you turn the power off today, just took out the power line, um, fortunately we're on a gravity feed water system. So we can, as long as we can still water the trees, without water the trees are gonna die. We'll just, yeah, we need water. But as long as we can water, even without applying insect controls and other things and fertilizers and whatever, I'm pretty sure you could come back in five years and you could pick fruit off these trees. They, it might not be cosmetically beautiful. It might not be as much production, but the trees would still be alive and the system would continue to work um, because there is a lot of resiliency in the regeneration. So the soils have legumes, the, the carbon does cycle. Um, trees are photosynthesizing. Um, we have a diverse cover crop that helps keep you know, noxious weeds down. And um, and so I, I think you have to look at a, let's say a non-organic regenerative system and say, does it have that capacity to persevere in the face of uh, perturbation? So if you're going to dump a six inch rainstorm on it, how's it going to react? Is that rain going to run in or is it going to run off? Is it going to be a gully and sediment in the Mississippi or is it going to be groundwater for the next, you know, in a thousand years. Uh, and so I think with regeneration, we have to really step back and make sure we look at the whole picture. And that I don't think happens when you just look at a no-till with herbicide use. You know, what is the total energy flow of that system? Maybe you're putting more carbon in the soil, but are you putting carbon in the soil by taking carbon out of an oil well somewhere? I actually don't know the numbers to that, but I think that's the question we have to ask. And even in an organic system, you know, we have to say, um, if we're going to, uh, we talked earlier about using a virus to control codling moth, well, we have to spray that every week because it breaks down so quickly. So does driving through the orchard once a week and the soil compaction, we have to use diesel and time, is that worth the trade-off of 
uh, you know, a very selective insect control thing, or we put up some nets now and our neighbors have, is that a better way to go? But nets have an ecosystem cost too, because they're gonna change the ecosystem of the tree by including and excluding things. And so we have to look at that, that bigger picture. And that to me is what regenerative is, is not taking, oh, it's just soil carbon, or it's just nitrogen, or it's just production. But what does the whole system look like and can it persevere? And eyes glaze over because you just mentioned like three things out of literally millions that affect carbon. And when we only look at soil organic matter as beneficial to the climate or not, we are missing so much. And so many programs now are only measuring that. Right. And even that has variability, yeah. depending on which lab you send the exact same sample to. Well, sure. And I could, so, I mean, where do I take the sample in the orchard here? You know? Yeah. 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 I, and so I think, you know, I mean, we could add biochar and have really high organic matter levels, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be fertile. <laughs> that it's gonna have trees or wanna grow in it because biochar is very non-turnover. Uh, I mean, that's the point of it. So, so, I mean, we need all forms of carbon. We need mobile carbon that turns over a lot. We need immobile carbon. Um, you know, I, it, it, so it's, it's- And we need to be looking at carbon that's not affiliated with what's in the soil that we're also using in our system. If, if right. we really aren't gonna be fooling ourselves here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we had a friend who has done a lot of carbon modeling professionally, um, and he looked at the farm and he said, yeah, we're pretty close to carbon neutral. You know, we may be a little bit on the wrong side. It, you know, depends how you want it, but that included fuel to go to farmer's markets. Wow. You know, so not just the farm, but the marketing of the farm as well. You know, that, I'll take a lot of pride in that. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm sure we can quibble with his numbers and you could get in there and say, well, you did this or that. But yeah. That tells me we're on the right track. That's amazing, Steve. Um, yeah. But we can still do better. <laughs> uh, there's no doubt. I mean, um, so, so I think regenerative really needs to look at a whole ecosystem. And as we talked about earlier, the way we market is we market multiple ways because that gives us lots of flexibility to go one way or another. And I think in terms of regenerative and an ecosystem, the system needs lots of ways to go depending on what the temperature is today or whether it got too cold last night or whether it rained a lot or whether it was dry. And that there needs to be lots of possible channels and lots of species in there that can poke their heads up if the conditions are right or chill out if the conditions are wrong. And if we don't have that diversity that we don't even know what is, then we've necked down our chances. Why do you think political leaders have been so quick to use the word when it's been decades and they still won't use the word organic, but they'll say regenerative? That they support it, for example. It's a sexy word. I mean, it's a word again. Um, and, you know, regenerative uh, does sound like a process <laughs> yeah um but i also think you know it's a, it's a point in time where we are facing climate crises and so it's easy to hang your hat on a peg and say wow this is the this is the next best thing i mean sustainable was this way in the 80s um you know organic was already there too but sustainable was the new <laughs> the new catchword well now sustainable's whatever you want to make it 
Uh, Isn't it regenerative? <laughs> Isn't that why they're using it? <laughs> I mean, theoretically. But, yeah. but I, you know, I mean, so it's, it's coming back to how do you define what a word is and not just make it a catchphrase that says, well, I, you know, I apply a lot of carbon to the soil. Okay. Well, I also apply a lot of nitrogen, so I burn it up. Or do I apply carbon to the soil and try and create a large carbon bank that is dynamic? Two very different systems. Um, so in Europe, they've got their Farm to Fork initiative. Have you heard about this? I've heard of it. I can't say I'm, Yeah, I mean, I, need I don't more. know too many details, but fully embracing organic, yep. right? They're going to, by 2025, it's like 25% organic, or, or maybe it's 2030. And... Um, I forget the other one. Oh, they're going to just across the board reduce um, pesticides um, and fertilizers by half. <laughs> so it's very right. much organic, right? right? What, like what's going on in this country that we can't embrace organic? <laughs> we have to come up with other words instead of organic. And there's even hostility towards organic farmers around the country as we visit that, you know, the, you're luckier in like an organic oasis here in Colorado, oh, yeah. but um, organic farmers just, they really get attacked. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's just, I mean, we live in a country that's polarized. You know, people of all sorts get attacked now for differences, um, uh, as we've seen. But uh, I think we don't do a good job of leaving people space to think and to act. We do a really good job of pushing people in one direction. I mean, conventional agriculture, and I'll broad brush it hugely, because obviously there's, you know, nuances there. But I mean, you know, our embrace of NPK, pesticides, GMOs, Roundup Ready, um, you know, we've gone whole hog into single answer systems. And that's been our mantra in the United States. And I don't see that ha having happened as much in Europe. Um, we've also gone whole hog into extreme consolidation of meat packing and production and big farms. Um, and I think that all makes it harder to be diverse and think broader. Uh, and until we say that we're, that's not a functional system, um, you know, we're kind of stuck there. I think we've also, and we heard it with the ammonia extracts come up, um, well, we need these to help feed the world. Uh, you know, my last chair report on the NOSB is we haven't fed the world yet conventionally. <laughs> um, so why you know, is ammonia extracts and organic going to make the difference for us to feed the world? I would argue it's probably going to do the opposite. It'll make it harder because we lose a system that's more resilient. But, you know, it's a false, it's a straw man that if we, you know, conventional agriculture has so far failed to feed the world. <laughs> it's a great goal. Wouldn't we all love it? But it's it, it's not just production; <laughs> it's climate, it's systems, it's social systems, and you know we've known that for years. Um, Francis Moore LePay definitely said that. You know, and so those are. I think we have to avoid letting getting caught in, you know, letting people define that this system has to be everything. Um, I think we need, can fall back on and say this has is an ecosystem. Ecosystems have survived for years and centuries 
millennia. Um, the model we base on single, single answers, whether it's DDT or nitrogen, have not shown sustainability and resilience and regeneration. They work great for a while, and then we have to prop them up with something else. Um, and I think that's, you know, we need to be honest with ourselves, and we're not very good at doing that. We're not good at admitting that Iowa's losing how much topsoil a year down the Mississippi. We're not good at saying the Mississippi has, or the, you know, Gulf of Mexico has the dead zone. Right. Um, or the Chesapeake. Talking or, about the costs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we externalize those costs. And until we internalize those costs, we're not going to, we're not going to know. If we internalize those costs, then suddenly the economics are going to really change. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, a lot of organic growers voluntarily internalize those costs. Yeah. They take it on themselves to say, I'm not going to have soil erosion. I'm not going to have nitrogen pollution. I'm not going to overapply phosphorus. I get frustrated with them. It's like <laughs> they're apologizing for tillage right now when it's they're incorporating so much biomass. Some of the best organic farmers in the country are accumulating carbon yep. while tilling. Yeah. You know, and like, should we be apologizing for tillage? No. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when done well. Yeah, you know? exactly. When done well. And doesn't mean that it's the only solution or that, that there might not even be better solutions, but it's a process. I mean, yeah. you know, we're always going to learn. We, you know, we're not going to have the magic bullet right out of the gate. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we, it, it's, we've really struggled to take credit for what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've, we've been marginalized, there's no doubt. Um, consumers have said that we shouldn't be marginalized because how many, what's the last stat? 80% of people buy organic food at some point. Yeah. Um, but it also, then that creates the opportunity because there's now this huge marketplace to want to get in on it without playing by the, all the rules. Yeah. Um, we've talked about that, but, uh, but I think it's just coming back again and again to ecosystems, 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 biology, ecosystems. <laughs> so in, a, in like this idealistic world where real organic just just takes off and, and wins or whatever, completely succeeds, what does that look like? What do we accomplish? I think we accomplish a very diverse landscape. Iowa would look much different. And the crops that we eat, um, there would obviously still be the mainstays that we eat right now, but it, there would probably be more side crops. Um, there would be larger rotations. There might be more grazing <laughs> um, rather than just uh, feedlots. Um, I think it would just be a much more diverse rather than monoculture landscape. And that you know, I think that's, you know, it's been documented, it works. You know, hedgerows work for water conservation, even though the crop right by them is less, the whole field is more. Um, you know, contour tillage works. <laughs> Grassed waterways work. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt. <laughs> but we subsidize saying you don't have to have that. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's okay is, to fill in a gully. <laughs> is that the organic landscape? that you see now, is that what you wish the government would put their money behind? Mm -hmm. Is organic. Yeah. And I, and, I would, and I would like to see the money, the government put the money behind not paying for the downstream costs. Somehow saying, tying if 
a bushel of corn can be produced for, and I don't grow corn, so I don't even know what the prices are, but if it's a buck a bushel, but you're spending, the Army Corps is spending 10 cents a bushel dredging or dealing with dead zones, then you gotta, it's, it's, it's a buck 10 and charging that. Um, They're doing the opposite now, right? <laughs> They're giving the check the opposite, to yeah. keep growing it right, exactly. <laughs> at the detriment. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's really where we get down to it is we have policies that subsidize the wrong side of things. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. Thanks for all your work. I mean, you're moving on to Knock now, uh, National Organic Coalition. As a consultant, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Keep, keep the finger in. Yeah, well, thank but, you for all your contributions well, to the organic community and for being part of Real Organic in your time today. Yeah, you too. And you're, this little piece of the beautiful uh, um, biodiversity that you're envisioning for the yeah. world, just doing your part there too. Well, we try, <laughs> you know, as I think most growers do. You know, most of the really fun organic growers are the ones that you know, are really always questioning. Yeah. Like is, what could I do differently? Yeah. What could I do better? You know, and they're proud of what they do, but they're not complacent. Yeah. Yep, there's always that's better. The, I think that's a real key is saying no we're not perfect that real spirit and then let me teach you come here this is this yeah. is awesome this is changing the world you know yeah. let me teach you how to do it yeah or let's brainstorm like yeah this bothers me yeah what can we do better yeah um so yeah i'm proud to be part of this community and yep. you're one of the reasons why <laughs> yeah well you too <laughs> i mean we all are i mean it's a fun community it is and it it's, is. you know the edges are tough <laughs> that's you know as in everything it's always the core is there, the edges are tough. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Stay in the core and keep fighting for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you are subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. Keep it up and leave us a rating and a review while you're at it. As always, you can find a video version of this interview at realorganicproject.org or on our YouTube channel. Join us next week when we'll be hearing from Jeff Moyer, CEO of the Rodale Institute, actually CEO Emeritus. He also served as the farm manager and director for three decades at Rodale.